to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that refuses to run off stage and out the back door, win or lose. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show, mid-beds wetting from the Tories as they lose two huge by-elections in one stormy night. Where does the party go next? Plus, millions of people are turning to private health care as delays continue in the public sector. Is a universal NHS free at the point of use a thing of the past? Let's meet the panel. Zoe Grunewald is a policy and politics correspondent for the New Statesman. Hello, Zoe. Hello. Um, Zoe, large parts of the country have been ravaged by rain with tragic, in some cases, fatal results. Do we appear to have been better prepared than usual? Um, I don't think so, to be honest. We always seem to fall as soon as there's any kind of slightly worse than usual weather event. So whether it's snow, heat, uh, flooding, we we always seem to crumble. Leaves. Yeah, leaves leaves on the track. Um, Yeah, it always seems to um, just creep up on us and then we can't believe this has happened and we don't know how this has managed to happen and why we, you know, why nothing's been done. I think this is pretty symptomatic of the government's approach to most crises, right? It, they wait till it happens and then yeah. they kind of wave their hands around and say, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, I think one thing that's worth pointing out, um, which Labour have been pointing out, is that they've been calling for a flood preparedness task force for, for a number of months. Right. Um, and I think it's just something the government hasn't taken very seriously. You know, we saw back in, I think, 2006, 2007, there were terrible floods in the north of England as well. People died. We don't seem to have learnt those lessons. That seems to be a reoccurring theme 2012 now. 2012 as well, or yeah. 2011 as well, there was a big one. Absolutely. It's a reoccurring theme in British politics that we don't tend to learn from the disasters. Um, and it's worth pointing out that uh, George Osborne cut the flood infrastructure defences as well during austerity. It's just another thing that was cut while the government were trying to you know, reduce the amount of public spending. So these, these actions have consequences. And yeah, unfortunately, it's going to uh, impact our preparedness for these kind of disasters. Meteorologists are warning that Babette will last for days and that autumn will be particularly unsettled and winter exceptionally cold. How will Sunak's pivot away from net zero look if we start to get a weather of regular freak mm. events? Yeah, I think most of us will think it looks naive. Um, you know, it, we have quite short memory as things. Do as people in, make that connection? Do well, they go, mm. Well, I think either you buy global warming and climate change or you don't and it doesn't matter what happens you'll either say oh this is just you know if you don't buy it you'll say well this always happens or this is just you know part of regular global weather patterns mm. whereas if you believe in climate change and global warming you'll say obviously these things are going to get worse um, you know we've, we've got quite a short memory in this country but I think we all remember how painful last winter was when it was freezing cold and we were all trying to keep our bills down because energy prices were extraordinary um, and we're going to have another very cold winter plus potentially more shocks to the energy market. We're seeing this unrest in the Middle East now. And one of the things the government has said in response to that is that's why it's good to, to kind of build on our energy supplies, you know, more oil and gas drilling, more off-sea licences. But actually, I think when you when you talk about, you know, flash flooding and things like that, people are going to be asking the question, if this is going to keep happening, what are we going to do? And is the government actually prepared for it? Mm. And is actually just being, you know, saying, oh, well, we can, you know, we just that's why we have to pivot away from net zero. I don't think most people, most sensible people who believe climate change is a thing are going to buy that. And, and indeed the idea of shrinking the state, because I remember writing a piece in The Guardian 10 years ago on the, on the last occasion of the big floods going, well, we've sort of had three years of people saying, let's shrink the state to nothingness. 
Um, so when you need the state to be there, mm. and these were all largely conservative constituencies underwater, and they were like, where is the state? Mm. Well, I mean, <laughs> the state can't be Schrodinger's state. Mm. It can't be both there when you need it and not there. Mm. Hannah Fern is a columnist for social policy and, oh God, what now? Regular now, I think. Hello, Hannah. Hi. Um, the government is charging ahead with its plan to sell the land HS2 would have gone through. It was initially bought at a premium because they were in such a hurry, meaning selling it also in a hurry will incur a loss of over a hundred million pounds. So what's the rush? Well, the rush is to stop there being any meaningful pledge in the Labour manifesto to reverse the decision. Um, Starmer, I think, as well, Labour uh, you know, policy thinkers have worked out that that could actually be in Labour's favour, given the backlash against the net zero withdrawal um, and the admission since the party conference season that a lot of the local transport projects that were promised in lieu of HS2 were actually a load of nonsense. It yeah. was just hot air that a lot of the projects were actually already there, like the Metro Link in Manchester and so on. The only way to stop them looking entirely ridiculous uh, getting rid of the HS2 pledge so quickly and uh, allowing Starmer that space is to make it physically impossible for him to commit. And by flogging it off really, really rapidly, it just becomes an impossible task. It can because, no longer because be done. Because instantly they will go, well, how are you going to pay for well, it? Well, instantly. You can't buy that land back again. Yeah. How are you going to pay for it? Far too complicated. Mm. Yeah. But it's important to say it's 100 million loss. But this is that's the stats just for between Birmingham and Crewe, uh, which is basically about £200 million was spent on that stretch. So it's a 50% loss oh we're talking goodness. about here. 50% loss. So there could be lots, a lot more. Yeah, the, 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 the bit beyond all the way to Manchester is not part of this story that broke in the Times. Extraordinary. So they're selling, they're selling one bit to basically break the link, literally to make it impossible Absolutely. for Labour to continue. I mean, like, you know, it is a fire sale, as you said, and it really smacks of that sort of panic, really. What is the rush? The we, it's that kind of we buy any car type thing. Like, we need to get rid of this now because we're broke. That's how it feels. So it's it's not a good look either for Sunak as he's preparing to go into an election. It looks like he simply can't manage the assets that the state holds. I'll be very interested to see who the buyers are. What are the ethics of a prime minister who did not lead his party to any election mandate? And I know people say, in this country, we don't elect the prime minister. But, I mean, if you think someone who'd led their party to an election has an equal democratic mandate as the third Johnny-come-lately to walk off the street, then you need to give yourself uh, your head a shake. Sure. So what are the ethics of a prime minister who did not lead his party to an election mandate, breaking a manifesto pledge and trying to tie a future elected PM's hands from reversing it. Why isn't there more of a stink about yeah, this? Yeah, I think there are two things here. The first is, what are the ethics in deliberately backtracking on a cross-party consensus to build infrastructure to the, for the future? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're beyond political ethics. Um, it, 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 there is no mandate for that. Also, it's a really terrible political decision. A lot of this is conservative. Heartland, as, as mentioned... Uh, and less than a year out from election, all those people who feel it very personally that their land, their farmland, some of them their homes were mm. forcibly taken from them by the state for a national project that's supposed to be for the benefit of the whole country. And now it's being flogged at a loss. 
there's an ethical question in that as well. How does that feel? Sure, it's a tiny percentage of the population. Why don't we keep it? Why don't we build houses on it? Absolutely, you won't be surprised to hear me say that. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. This is a large public asset that could be used to solve that problem or at least play some part in it. For months, political opinion writers, tired of writing Labour looks like it will win the next election and goaded by editors, have spiced things up with increasingly outlandish narrow paths to victory for Rishi Sunak. The Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire by-elections have made those paths so narrow you couldn't skate through them on a razor blade. In one night, we saw a government lose the safest ever seat at a by-election in Tamworth and the overturning of the biggest ever numerical majority in Mid-Bedfordshire. It is absolutely fair to point out that in both those contests, poor behaviour by previous MPs Chris Pincher and Nadine Dorries will have played a part. It is less true to call such poor behaviour the exception in today's Tory party. That doesn't mean things can't change, of course. A week is a long time in politics and a year is 52 times longer. But as things stand right now, it is churlish to pretend that the Tories are heading for anything other than defeat. Hannah, why hasn't Greg Hands been sacked? I mean, (laughs) is this complacency or an implicit admission that actually this is about par for the course, that he did as well as could be expected? I don't think it's complacency. He hasn't resigned because resigning is admission of utter failure of strategy. And he hasn't been sacked because... Sacking him is an admission of failure of strategy. So it's almost like, uh, you know, they just clash there. Neither of us are going to admit that they've got it fundamentally wrong. And both Sunak and Hans are committed to this line that it's all about turnout, that we simply didn't see the numbers. You can't really extrapolate anything from these swings to a general election, which we all will say in here. I'm sure that's absolutely mm. nonsense. But they're now committed to that analysis. That's do they, what, that's do you think they actually believe it? it? I don't think they do, actually. No. no. But, you know, what can you do, actually, in that situation? And and if they were to sack him or he was to resign and say, I've got it wrong, needs to be a new mind behind the next stage of the, uh, the push towards the election... Well, who is that and what is the strategy? Because they've already gone to the dirtiest possible lines. I get Where all of that. Go? Okay. But that still leaves that same man in charge of the next by-election and the one after that and the general election after that. So you yeah. still have kind of a problem if that's the sort of political brain that you have sure. working out I, your strategy. I think they've run out of alternative options. Right. Um, and running this to the end is really all they've got left. I was looking back at what right-leaning opinion pieces were saying on the day Sunak was crowned prime minister, which is a year uh, ago on Wednesday. And the general sense was that his technocratic competence would serve the party quite well. And his personal opinion ratings, which were much higher than the Tory parties, would sort of rub off on the party. Mm. And exactly one year on... How how are those aspir- <laughs> how are those aspirations looking? <laughs> it's not great, is it? Now I didn't write one of those pieces, but I'm not ashamed to admit that I also believe that. that. Yeah, yeah. Why did I have that hope? What what was I attaching myself to? And actually, when you think about it, he's not a civil servant. When people talk about technocrats, they're usually talking about the kind of the competent civil servants. Mm. But he's not. He's kind of city boy, tech bro type. And people don't people who work in those organisations they don't have 
you know, great things to say about those working environments. They're not, um, you know, slick professional business hubs. They're often abusive, bullying, you know, some of the worst yeah. mm. environments to Move work in. Move fast and break things. Totally. So I think that I was wrong in my snap analysis that he was going to bring something of a, you know, a, a leaner, more kind of efficient approach to management of, of government. It's absolutely not. Zoe, it is customary for parties to spin by election losses, but for a party against which the central charge is you're out of touch, is there a danger that we mustn't read too much into it? Huge loss after huge loss. It just begins to look like the same lack of contact mm. with reality, basically. Yeah, it does. And I agree with Hannah that almost what else are they going to say? It is Greg Hans' job to put a positive spin on these things. And, you know, the government are also going to try and come out and do the same, obviously. However, you're right. And I think there is something there, going on with the concern. There is a way to say nothing, though, isn't there? There is a way to say, we must listen, we must reflect, we'll go mm. away and think about. Do you, do you know what I mean? Rather than going, oh, everything is going swimmingly. When I talk to people on the doorstep, they think Sunak is amazing. Yeah. And I think I think you're right with how you pose the question. This kind of out of touch quality that seems to just define this conservative government. I mean, it's just getting more and more obvious. And to go back to Sunak, when Sunak became prime minister, he looks like a sensible alternative um, who can steady the ship. But actually, this man is almost a billionaire. He has so much money. He is incredibly out of touch. And I was always, you have to be cautious about saying people with lots of money can't possibly be prime minister. But when you are that wealthy and you've had that kind of background, you have to ask how much you have in in um, common with people who are living in a cost of living crisis. And he's shown repeatedly again and again that he doesn't really seem to quite grasp the gravity of what a lot of people in this country are living through. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. Then when you come back from a really humiliating by-election defeat and you turn around and you say, oh, it wasn't really that bad. I think it was fine. Again, it just adds to that sense of, uh, do they understand what's going on in the country? Yeah. Are they listening to people on the doorstep? And I think that's the thing that people will take away is that the Conservatives don't seem to be engaging with what the public are asking with for. With reality. Yeah, they don't seem... The and very funniest thing I heard said on all of this was on any questions at the weekend. It was the Scottish Tory uh, MP, Andrew, Bowie and he just said the most ridiculous thing which was this wasn't a Labour success let's put it in perspective it wasn't a yeah. Labour mm. success sure the numbers were very small the margin between each actual uh, candidate but the swing to Labour was phenomenal it was a Labour success yeah. I mean on that that has been the line expressed in different ways but it's not that they like care, it's that they really just hate us. It, does, it just doesn't seem like a great line to take. But do you think there is a truth to it? Do you think that Labour lead is actually very soft? Mm. Well, I think uh, you're totally right. I don't understand who in CCHQ went, I think that's a brilliant defence, you know, they... they, they really hate us, they don't like Keir, that stands us in good stead. Of course it doesn't. If they don't like Keir Starmer, but they'd still rather vote for him overwhelmingly than you, <laughs> that's not a ringing endorsement, is it? I think there is some truth in that people are still asking what exactly it is Starmer 
represents for mm. the Labour Party. And, you know, Starmer isn't without his criticisms. You know, when there was that word cloud not that long ago and the main word in the centre was boring for how people described Keir Starmer. Now, arguably, the last three years of politics have been so manic that actually I think a lot of people in this country just want stability, security, and they don't care if their prime minister is boring and they don't really want to have a drink with him down the pub as long as he feels like a fairly safe pair of hands. Because we had a prime minister last year who crashed the economy. We had another prime minister who responded way too late to the pandemic and then lied his way through it. And now we have Sunak, who doesn't seem to grasp what's going on in this country. I think people just want a prime minister who offers that stability. And, you know, of course, we'd all like, I mean, I think a lot of people would appreciate maybe a radical approach to some things. But actually, I think most people just want to feel like the next year, they're not going to be hit with a giant Mm. utility bill or, you know, going to lose their house. And these are all really real things that people are grappling with right now. I mean, strangely, I also think that it was a bit of a Streisand effect. I don't know if either of you thought that or if it's just my impression. But it felt like sort of Greg Hand's tenured response to this, pretending everything's all right and everyone loves, you know, Sunak and nobody wants an early election. It just seemed to amplify the the, uh, by-election loss. Mm. It might have gone slightly under the radar with everything else going on at the moment, but them coming out and constantly going, well, it was all right. Mm. We, We only lost a completely safe, constituency, but with a 25%. So, I mean, anyway, Hannah, inevitably, different factions of the Tory party are now trying to pull it in different directions. GB News host and Tory stenographer, Christopher Hope, posted a list of things Tory MPs think they should now focus on, consisting mainly of culture war guff. Is it too late for Sunak to change course now and try to get back to the centre-right ground, do you think? Has the the course been charted? I think it probably has. If you think about what the centre-right ground would constitute, examples including HS2, which Sunak, when he binned it in his Mm. conference speech, described it as part of an old consensus. Well, the old consensus was arguably (laughs) centre-right. It would include things like not standing on the podium at your conference speech and attacking trans rights. Mm. Uh, It's too late for him. If these two by-election results had been a month before the party conference season, it may not have been. There may have been a chance for a genuine pivot. Or if Uxbridge hadn't happened. Actually, I think even post-Uxbridge, but after... Uh, but before yeah, the conferences, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there still would have been a chance to like listen to listen to this the, the size of this swing, and say, okay, some of this isn't working. I'm not going to stand there and talk about trans people. That's a small minority of the population. There's really no need for me to go big on that in my conference speech. And maybe they'd have thought again about it, just to maybe not. But the the culmination of all of those policies together and being the prime minister making that those pledges on the stand at your flagship, uh, you know, the, the moment you talk to the people each year, the once a year you might actually get the top line on the on the news at the end of the day. Mm. Um, it's too late. It's, it's gone. That Twitter thread that you just mentioned is, I think, uh, the best in show for the category of everything that's wrong. I know, I know, because it was <laughs> it's like... really wrong about everything. Mm. Because you could literally go through the whole thing and go, you look at polling and you think, what what are people's top concerns? Poll after poll after poll, cost of living, yep. economy, NHS. NHS. And you go through that list and you think, 
Will that fix that? No. Will that fix that? No. I mean, and literally, you look as a government like you're focusing on all the wrong stuff. Two of five points were about migration. And yeah, number yeah. two, clamp down on legal migration. How does he expect to do that? Just break the law. Mm. <laughs> no, I think he means tweak the point system so that it's even more difficult when yeah. actually labour shortages are one of the thing, things constraining growth. It's, it's identifying flashpoints, isn't it? That's what it is. It's identifying things to make voters sit up and go, yeah, he's right. That's why, that's how I feel. I'm I'm angry about that. But there's no solutions in there. You know, people are worried about the economy and the NHS because they want those things fixed. This is all about almost finding issues to exploit to get an electorate angry and engaged. And that's dangerous, right? It's It's, it's a, you know, they're Brexit junkies Mm. looking for their next high. Mm. It worked for that. And and so now they you know that's the thinking. Yeah. Um, in the Tamworth by-election, Tory candidate Andrew Cooper of fuck off flowchart fame <laughs> um, made everyone wait ten minutes on stage to announce the result, and then legged it as soon as his name had been read out. How important is good grace in defeat? I think it's so important. This is embarrassing. And that's, again, it just compounds this issue of them really not getting how the electorate feels. If you think about the history of moments where people had to take a hit, everyone talks about the Michael Portillo moment. But yeah, he took that in good grace. But also, do you remember Stephen Twigg, who took Michael Portillo's Mm. seat? He lost it in 2005. And he took that in incredible good grace too. And that should be part of being a public servant. If you are willing to stand and serve your people, then one thing that you do is you listen to them with respect. And that showed a a sort of deafening lack of respect to me. And I think for your party activists as well, yeah, who all are the work in they've there, put in, yeah, you know, the, the in the crowd, the, yeah. looking for some leadership and some comfort, yeah. you can rescue a little bit of kudos or you can take it and set fire to it and then piss on it. Well, it's and, selfishness, and that's isn't sort it? Of what all those did, people yeah. who've worked for you for nothing <laughs> I mean, to he try went, and... He went full Disney villain, didn't he? Robert, the whole yeah, thing yeah, was yeah. so yeah. evil and, yeah. like, yeah, it was just, I mean, almost great that he revealed it so... Blatantly at the end. So the Telegraph claims Reform UK swung it for Labour because they won more votes than the Labour majority in either constituency. Is that a fair reading of the data? Well, it kind of fits with what we were talking about, which is that um, the Conservatives don't believe there's a swing of support for Labour. They actually think for some reason voters are being turned off by them. Mm. And here, basically, the argument the Telegraph is making is they're losing a lot of voters on the right to reform UK. Um, And that is where the Tories are getting hurt. So if they can shift rightwards and regather those those voters, then they could have you know, kept Labour at bay in these by-elections. The problem with this is we don't know that those voters would have ever voted Conservative, obviously. True. I mean, a lot of people who are voting for Reform UK, I imagine, are doing that in a way because it's a bit of an anti-establishment vote. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that they just need the Tories to pivot slightly rightward on a particular issue doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. I mean, yep. you might point to something like immigration, but I actually think there's, there's... I can't see the evidence to suggest that all those people were just waiting for... Well, there is none. Yeah, I mean, exactly. But I think what the Telegraph is doing here is is almost making a slight pitch for the list you just read out to, to for the Tories to reconsider their positioning on certain right wing culture war mm. issues. Um, yes, these these by elections confirm you need to do exactly what we've <laughs> wanted you to do all along. Yeah. 
It's, it's, it's the telegraph being the telegraph, I would yeah. possibly suggest. And of course, there's no, there's no way of knowing that going further to the right wouldn't have alienated even more voters from, from the centre. Or that making that kind of move wouldn't have fired up even more people that vote, let's say, Green or Lib Dems mm -hmm. to vote tactically. Absolutely. Because again, all those things are possible. Because there's still a number of people who are voting Conservative, but might be slightly off put by the Suella Bravmans in the party, for example. Mm. But, you know, maybe they still don't trust Labour or they would never, you know, they're lifelong Conservative voters. If you continue shifting rightwards, you're right, there's going to be a lot of that sort of centre ground of Conservatives who might be put off by that. And, you know, the party has pretty much mostly always won when it's been in the sort of more towards the centre yeah. ground. So the idea that shifting rightward would fix everything for the Tories doesn't really stand up to to the history of the Conservative wins. Widening the lens a little bit, um, it was, I find the timing quite interesting. Rumours began circulating over the weekend that Jeremy Hunt will not seek mm -hmm. re-election um, they have been denied so vehemently that they can only be true, I think. Um, how significant would that be? Mm. Well, I mean, it'd be pretty significant, right? I mean, if the, chan <laughs> if the Chancellor, who is pretty much the second most important person in, in the government, um, is basically going to stand up and say, do you know what, I don't think I'm going to fight the next election... That's basically, uh, OK, even he doesn't think we're going to win. Even he doesn't back the... And, you know, how can the electorate back his long-term financial... That he won't be there to If deliver. he won't be there to put, put them through. So it's really damaging for Sunak. I suspect that's why they've been shut down so quickly, because they know this looks, you know, that, that could be the nail mm. in the coffin mm. of, the, of Sunak's government. I imagine what happened, and I don't know, I don't have any intel, is that uh, like many um, wise conservatives, he's just testing the waters, having conversations about maybe what he could do after government, you know, mm -hmm. if, if he were to step down, just completely hypothetically, yeah, yeah. Um, and words words got out. But yeah, I think totally. I mean, it's it would be so damaging for Sunak to go and fight an election knowing that his chancellor doesn't you know, doesn't want to do it Effectively by his side. Effectively with a lame duck mm -hmm. running mate. Hannah, do you think these by-election results will have any effect on the possible timing of the general election? Well, the general reading is that we're looking now at January 2025. It's the longest it can possibly be eked out um, because of the need now to just sit and wait and see if anything positive happens something. in the economy. Yeah, or the, ideally or the something economy or, it, it, or immigration, yeah. something happens, maybe very a low war, rates over... An asteroid. <laughs> yeah, the end of humanity, <laughs> save us all. Um, there was an interesting piece by Institute for the Government actually arguing that, that, that all of this makes January 2025 most likely. I actually don't think so, because if turnout is the big issue here, if they're having to go back and have those back, or you know, mm. private conversations about what's really going on. If turnout is the big issue that's really making the swing to Labour very, very obvious in very strong Tory constituencies, we've got to accept the Tory vote is now mostly over 55, more than at any previous time. Yeah. And if you hold an end of January election, the over 55s are the most likely to not turn out because of things like weather. I think it's actually more likely than ever that it's going to be May because May you get higher turnout because of the weather. Literally, can you drive there? Is the weather good enough for someone who's perhaps a little bit more frail to, to drive? What about the activists 
themselves, who many are, are, are of retirement age, will they be willing to go out and drive people around to get to the polling station? This stuff actually really matters for the Tory vote much more than any other now. I mean, um, I think if, if Sunak actually decides to put the country through a, a pre-election <laughs> period over the holidays, mm. I, I can't think of anything worse he could do, actually. I think he will be punished for yeah. doing that. I, you, but, you, you raise the, a really good point, actually. At that point, he will be considered a squatter. And and I, I think that's the that's the bit that doesn't figure in so many people's thinking. And I find that astonishing, considering that the experience of, of uh, Gordon Brown is so recent that once that narrative tipped over to come on, mate, everyone's waiting to mm. chuck you out, it was it. impossible to recover. And every day he stays in office longer will create more pent-up energy in that in that spring waiting to throw him mm. out of office. Mm. Tim Shipman, whose sources in the Tory party are usually pretty solid, yeah. um, says that between 20 and 25 letters of no confidence are about to be sent to the 1922 committee. Oh, please save us from this. Can't <laughs> Could we it. really see another leadership con contest before the general election? I just, I can't even. No, no, but, I, but could um, we? Though? I don't think so. I think if he ends up with a significant number of letters, I think it's most likely to trigger actually a general election. We'll call it general. Yeah, that's because what, what else can that's you do? Because he has because no mandate anyway well, to then. try and deliver a you know a, another yeah. mandate for yourself based on nothing. It, he would use it as an excuse, I think, to to just make this painful period come to an end. That doesn't mean it won't happen. I hope it happens. If it happens, we'll all be that, resolved. Because the problem bigger. is these are individual decisions and no one knows exactly how many others no. have made that individual decision. And if people are looking now at seats and they think, well, I'm out anyway, mm. so I might as well take a last throw of the dice, yep. see if someone else might turn this around are Labour ready that's that's the interesting question to me if this was to all suddenly blow up in the next two months with a 1922 you know committee intervening and a general election suddenly being called we're already into the autumn pre-Christmas is just as bad as Christmas time I, I'm interested to know I think Labour are very ready uh, that, that's a sense I get from party people I think they really are Totally rearing to go. go. And I'm not sure actually the Conservatives are ready, no. even with the notice that they will have that he's about to call an election. I don't know that they're co completely good to go in terms of selection. No, and numbers, stuff like exactly. That. No, no. Um, uh, uh, Labour, I think, are more advanced in their selection process than the Tories are at the moment. Um, Zoe, we should also say a word about the mystery of Sunak's uh, disappearing and reappearing mobile phone. <laughs> what, what's the story with that and why is it significant? Why are Conservative Prime Ministers so bad with their phones? I, I mean, know, right? the, the real question that's been thrown up by the COVID inquiry so far, I think. Um, so basically, this is very reminiscent of the thing that was going on with Boris Johnson not that long ago, where there was also a bit of a furore over his mobile phone and what WhatsApps he could access. So Rishi... It's still going on. Has he actually yeah, handed them on. all over? Yeah, I don't think he has. Partial, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Rishi Sunak's old phone number and a voicemail recording have been leaked online um, by 
pranksters, hackers um, in a security breach. So when when the argument is when you ring Sunak's phone, there's a dial tone and there's a voicemail recording. And this actually goes against um, Sunak, who told the inquiry that he was unable to hand over WhatsApp messages to do with the COVID inquiry because he changed his phone number several times and could no longer access it. So now there's a question of if we can ring that mobile number right now and, and speak to him, then clearly it's accessible. So, yeah, the Prime Minister claimed he did not have access to messages from the period when he was running the Treasury because he hadn't backed them up. So, I mean, I don't know exactly about the technicalities of backing up your phone and getting your messages off WhatsApp, but I think the implication is that maybe he's not being totally honest about his mobile and how accessible it is. Um, shocked. Uh, yeah, I know. Shocked. it's Yeah, so, I I mean, again, it's just this whole ridiculous... Um, it just it just shines a light on how ridiculous this is that so much of government is for some reason done over WhatsApp. And and officials during that period don't think about backing any of these messages up. I mean, it's extraordinary um, that this is being brought to light and that government during a time of crisis was being conducted like this. Next up, time to choose your hero and villain of the week, who is a candidate for the Grand Jury Prize and who for a Grand Jury subpoena. Anna. So my hero is Dr. Camilla Kingdon, the president of the Royal College of Paediatrics. And she has used her position, which we don't often see people like this do, to come out and attack the government directly. Um, she says that climate change poses an existential threat to child health. And so she's attacked Sunak for his decision to roll back on net zero, uh, basically describing it as a terrible mistake. Mm. So good for her. Mm. Um, my villain is the Department of Education. I can't give uh, a particular individual because I'm not sure who's behind this, but a really shocking story this week. Uh, apparently, the DfE has been basically keeping tabs on ordinary teaching staff and teaching assistants and so on by monitoring their social media accounts if they have been critical of government education policy to the point where many are now submitting subject access requests through GDPR legislation to find out what files the department's holding on them. These are ordinary teachers and ordinary TAs. Unbelievable. Really gross. Yeah, it doesn't. Chilling. Yeah, it doesn't smack of confidence. No. Uh, does it? How about you, Zoe? Okay, mine are both a bit um, silly, and so you'll you'll probably prefer Hannah's. But my villain of the week is Richard Maidley, um, because last week um, he on live television asked the Lib Dem MP Leila Moran who is I believe of Palestinian descent uh, if her family who lived in Palestine had any prior knowledge of the Hamas Oh Lord attack. I missed that thing and uh, said Did you hear something from the ground or something Yeah he said, said um, was there any word on the street <sighs> he asked a I, it was an extraordinary Shocking. piece of TV. Yeah. I mean, it was so incredibly tone deaf, rude, offensive. She handled it very gracefully. Um, in fact, I think she would have had legitimacy to be a lot um, ruder back to him, to be honest. But um, I think she's quite used to it, yeah. Lila, to be honest. Yeah, but just extraordinarily rude, terrible journalism. And I'm not really... I mean, it, he's... I think he's one of those presenters who people have a good laugh at because he's he can be quite funny and, and it's, you know, sort of slightly impish in many ways. But that was just an example of how sometimes that can be a cover for kind of quite nasty prejudice. It's just mm. idiotic. It was, yeah, it was a really... Uh, how I, little must you know about I think Gaza? it's quite a while since Richard Maidley has been funny and impish, mm. to be honest. <laughs> 
I think you're probably right, but he's one of those presenters that is getting memed quite a lot because he does say these yeah. these silly things. Right, and Hero of the Week? Uh, my Hero of the Week, this is um, kind of ridiculous, to be honest, but it, it kind of did make me laugh because it just reminded me how crazy the UK can be sometimes. So there was a story of a woman who thought Hamas was invading her village of Armthorpe in Doncaster because people were paragliding um, in in her village. And she posted this, this message saying that they terrified her. And I just thought it was just kind of an extraordinary... It just made me laugh in quite a dark time, to be honest. I thought it was so silly. And her message, bless her, was she was clearly had a bit of a fright. Um, and people were obviously kind of going for her online. And it was ridiculously silly. But I don't know. I just kind of just made me chuckle in the moment. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. So I think I'm going to give hero to Dr. Camilla Kingdon. Definitely. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think more people in that sort of position should use that position to say when something is just objectively wrong. You know, you don't... It Bipartisanship doesn't mean ignoring, you know, things that are objectively wrong. And I think Villain of the Week, I mean, I want to give it to the Department of Education. I might do it jointly, actually. <laughs> I think the Department Maidley of Education it. and Richard yeah. Maidley, because, you know... Because what irks me, actually, is that he does have that reputation for being a bit of a buffoon mm. and a bit of an Alan Partridge, and he does go viral quite often. But but he has frequently been revealed to be very backward, very aggressive in many ways. There's always some some spike to the stuff he says jokingly, and I don't think it's I don't think it's a coincidence. So. That's my decision. Now, research by YouGov earlier in the year found that one in eight Britons pay for private health care. More recent data from Statista, published by the FT, suggests that number may have climbed as high as 22% more recently. Are we about to reach a tipping point where private health care becomes the norm for anyone who can afford it? And how will that impact the ability of the NHS to recover? Zoe, you spoke to a lot of people who have been on the NHS waiting list sometimes for years before turning to private health care. The New Statesman published a huge piece with highlights from those interviews last week. Was there a story that stood out for you that sort of encapsulated the mm. problem there? So there were two, um, of, of all the people I spoke to, there were two that really stood out for me. And one of them I'd spoke about in the piece and one of them I, I didn't write about because it was, I just didn't have the word count to include their story because it, it threw up a whole separate issue, which I, I couldn't get into, but I hope to follow up. So the, the main story was um, around this, this person called Olivia, who has had um, severe bowel problems. And I mean, really debilitating bowel mm. problems for, for years. And she's been to the doctor so many times and they just keep telling her it's perfectly normal IBS. Now, this is something I think will ring true for a lot of people, but also a lot of women who will tell you that they go to the doctor and they have their pain ignored a lot, especially when it comes to gastrointestinal and reproductive issues. But basically, she was telling me, you know, this was really disrupting her life. She was unable to go places. She was in intense pain and eventually just felt like she had no choice but to go private just to get a diagnosis so this isn't even treatment she doesn't know what the treatment's going to throw up this is but she spent about five thousand pounds now just on trying to get a diagnosis and see various clinicians 
it just really hit home to me. You know, this is a, a young person. She's, you know, in her, in her mid-20s in such discomfort and such pain. And whether it's that the doctor doctors she's seeing don't take her seriously or whether it's that they just do not have capacity to expedite her... It was extraordinary. And, you know, there's a lot of talk at the minute about getting these all these sick people back to work and, you know, making them as productive mm. and healthy as possible. And there's simply no way we can do it if we don't have an NHS that can't just get somebody with quite a severe issue diagnosed when they're, when they're young. You know, it's a bunch of people out of the workforce. That should be a real political there's, priority. There's definitely a pattern. Did you see Naga Manchetti? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, that that's very reminiscent, mm. right, of people just going, oh, just deal with it, mm. everyone, you know, gets period pain and just not listening to the fact that mm. it wasn't just having, it wasn't just period pain. Mm. I mean, there is a thing, and I've, I've written about this a number of times actually at the NIS, which is that women's uh, pain is just always, it's just often minimised by doctors and um, you know, especially reproductive health, but gastrointestinal issues, it's something that's very common in women. I think something like one in four women have, mm. have problems with their stomach and it's just seen as almost part of being a woman, but there can be loads of underlying issues. It's the same as well with bladder health. I've written before about chronic UTIs. Mm. Women just get fobbed off over and over again and some can't work because of constant pain, constant mm. bladder issues, it does seem to be a recurring issue. Yeah. So thinking back on all those conversations, did a pattern emerge? Mm. Did Was there something that sort of stood out for you that A happens, then B happens, then C happens, and that's how you drive people? So absolutely. So, I mean, everyone was talking about having an issue, going to the doctor a number of times, already struggling to get a GP appointment and then having to do that dance of trying to, you know, getting on the phone at 8am, one second past 8am, just to sit there for an hour to try and get a GP appointment for three weeks time. And, you know, and then they would go through the process of, well, then you'll get your referral letter, which only allows you to book an appointment. And then once you've booked the appointment, you're waiting 16 months. You know, that was a very normal sort of conversation I was having. But what really stuck out to me, which I found really interesting was the amount of young people who are now opting for private healthcare. I always assumed, perhaps naively, that the, the number of people now using private healthcare because they can't get NHS care quick enough are older people who have the money, who have the time, you know, who have been sat on waiting lists. Mm-hmm. Actually, more and more young people are saying, do you know what? I'm going to just pay for this. Yeah, I'm not going to lose the next three years yeah, of my life. Exactly. And I was, I just find that, you know, I tend, tend to think that young people, we don't have very much money. A lot of young people tend to be more ideologically opposed to privatisation, you mm, know, as a general mm. trend. But actually, I think there is a feeling of this is ruining my social life. This is ruining my life. You know, I just, if I can just pay this amount rather than going on holiday next year, that's what I'll do and what a sad state of affairs when you know young people the money they save the little money they save they're now spending on mm. private healthcare you mm. know this um woman uh olivia i was talking to you know she's a journalist she's saying i don't make a lot of money i've spent about five thousand pounds on this i really really wish i didn't have to do this but i feel like i have no choice and it's like you know can she go out and and you know be a normal woman and spend time with her friends that, that to her is is kind of worth the money. But, you know, this isn't a thing people are doing because they want to. I think there is a sense that when you look at sort of £30 for a GP appointment, some people go, do you know what? That's fine. I'll do that because there are people with less money than me yeah. who can't afford £30 for a GP appointment. But I, I do think the number of people who feel happy about using private health care isn't, 
isn't that large. It's mm. almost just become a, a necessity. Yeah, it also feels like because of all the delays in the system, there's a lot of gatekeeping mm. going on. You know, like the the practice will not let you see the doctor until you've seen a nurse. And then the doctor will not refer you to a specialist until you've That's been back three happening. times. That's definitely happening for younger people. So when I, I wrote a little bit about this last year, one of the interviews I did was with Chris Thomas, who is a researcher at IPPR, who did a whole piece of research on this. And he found that the motivation for opting out differed among age groups. But Ultimately, young people were much more likely to have less confidence in the NHS mm. than older people. And they were opting out partly because they just didn't believe the NHS was going to solve their problem. Whereas older people were just opting out because of waiting lists or quality of life mm. or whatever. And one of the reasons for that might be that young people don't ha haven't had as many years of contact with the NHS. So, yes. and, and, and post-COVID... The service is definitely being rationed, which means young people are considered to be much less high risk. So they aren't getting those appointments. And so that confidence is further eroded. And that means that they're more likely to say, you know, I'll, I'll pay for this. And some of those, um, you said £30 for a doctor's appointment. Actually, some of those subscription-based um, GP apps are like about £7 a month, which is the same as Netflix. Yeah. And people are going to start to see that as a, a viable alternative just to invest in their health. Yeah. And maybe also there's a sense that people are above a, a certain age are prepared for a level of discomfort or, or unwellness to be part of their life. But if you're 25, you want to be well. You, know? Possibly, you have an expectation The reason of that being well. so many older people are now pivoting Opting, yeah. to it is partly because the cost per benefit goes up as you're older. If, you've only, if you're 70, let's say, you, hopefully you have at least 20 years left, let's hope. Um, but if you need cataract surgery, which only costs about £2,500, the benefit of getting that earlier in those 20 years mm, is mm. huge. That, you know, spending that money totally makes sense. Can I ask you a slightly woollier question, Hannah? Um, one of the top scientific advisors during the COVID-19 crisis, we now find out from the inquiry, branded Sunak Dr. Death mm. shortly after his Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Uh, did the pandemic actually reveal a philosophical dilemma between treating people as economic units mm. as opposed to individuals of value in terms of health care? And is there something that links into this, what we're talking I about? I think, well, so the reality is, is that government and parts of government have always seen people in these terms. Right. Um, the railway industry, the transport industry, motoring, they all have a cost per death for all kind of safety purposes mm -hmm. and so on. It's always been part of the system. But with the pandemic, we started to see that in plain sight, which people were just not used to being referred to in these terms. And, uh, and the business mm -hmm. of doing government in a pandemic in public meant that we all heard about it. So that feels uncomfortable. And maybe that has played a part into, ha into people's feeling that the NHS isn't there for them in this kind of touchy-feely way. It's a, a state system which thinks about them in unit terms, which it does. And actually, overall, I mean, at the that's same time, to the, the benefit NHS of everyone. The NHS was there for people during the pandemic in a very real way. Sure, it was. The, if you, you were know. in intensive care, like the care of the nursing teams and so on, people, you know, talking rhapsodies about that, and rightly so. Yeah. 
But the business side of the NHS, the how you decide where to invest the money in, which cancer treatments and so on and so forth, how, what you prioritise now, whether it's the story of, you know, Olivia not getting the bowel treatment that they need because actually it's not going to kill them, but it's making their life devastating. Those kind of decisions are very uh, sort of crude and they're about finance and and maybe maybe that makes people think, well, I'm just going to invest in paying for this myself because I'm, you know, the cost, I'm, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not going to feed very I, well I in just this model. Want, I just wonder when those two things come together in a really horrible way, you know, what Zoe was talking about, this idea that we need to get more people back to work mm. and this idea of people as economic units and prioritising. I wonder when those two things come together and government well, actually it... tells the NHS, we want you to prioritise people of working age. I really because... genuinely believe they already do that. Mm. I don't know it to be true, but I think it's almost certainly true because it's where you invest. Things like cancer treatment is already rationed in the over 75s. Because the benefit cost benefit ana analysis isn't as so I and I do think some of this affects how people feel about their own healthcare that they they think that they get more for paying for it mm. because then they it's they are a business client. Zoe, can a party that is penny pinching, as Labour is keen to tell us they will do, really fix the NHS, or is it more about reform mm. and less about funding, which might actually mean the NHS's parlous state makes it easier for Labour to be radical with its reforms mm. because there's less to lose, as it were. Mm. So I think there are a number of things that, you know, West Streeting's been talking about, which I think are welcome. I think, you know, a degree of NHS reform is welcomed by most people working in the NHS. You know, there are bits that need to be sorted out. There is there's waste. You know, any public institution that's been around this long has things that can be altered. I think also the shift, the sort of shift in, in tone from WES to preventative healthcare is really important because if you want to future-proof the NHS, the best thing you can do is stop people needing it straight mm, away. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I thought was, you know, quite a good, neat little policy idea was getting children to brush their teeth in school, getting teachers to yeah. show kids how to brush their teeth because tooth decay is one of the leading one of the leading reasons that kids are, have uh, interact with the NHS Um at an emergency care point. So um, absolutely, I think there's a good priority there. I think one of the things Labour really needs to flesh out is a social care plan. And I think one of the reasons they haven't fleshed this out too much is because it's going to include, it's going to need a lot of money. Yeah. And they're going to have to resource that from somewhere. And, you know, we've seen social care plans be really difficult for a lot of governments. Theresa May's government, um, when, when they announced their social plan, social care plan in the 2017 manifesto, that had yeah. a lot of scrutiny on it. I guess one of the most important things, though, and this is where the NHS really does need investment and spending, is staff, because there is a recruitment, mass recruitage, uh, recruitment shortage in the NHS, mm. also retaining staff as well. So one of the things I picked out of my piece is actually it makes financial sense for an individual nurse or doctor to start doing private health care in additional shifts to NHS healthcare because it, it pays better. Um, and, you know, previously the NHS has relied on just doctors and nurses doing a lot of overtime, but if they can make more money, and, you know, they haven't had... A, yeah. a lot of them will say they haven't had a significant pay rise, it's not keeping up with the cost of living. A lot of them will choose to make more in the independent sector. I mean, and also, I mean, right now we are hiring people who are actually on strike. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, mm. to 
to consult privately, as it were, to alleviate the uh, the whole thing is is crazy. Yeah. Um, Hannah, as often tends to be the case, these conversations end up being rather England centric. Mm. So what I wanted to ask was, is the same thing broadly happening in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, or are they doing something different that we can learn from or? You know, what? what is the picture in, in the other three nations? In Scotland, actually, the trend is the same, but even more rapidly. So there's a 73% rise in the number of people going for private, self-paid private procedures since the pandemic. And there is a smaller increase, but still significant for insured patients. So those who might have healthcare through their employment and yep. so on. But 73% rise in the number of people who are paying out of their own wallets to have a procedure mm. uh, privately in the years since the beginning of the pandemic, so the last three years. Uh, and the UK average for self-pay is about one in three pr private procedures are paid for in cash as opposed to through a policy. That's It's almost half in Scotland. So we know that NHS waiting lists are, I think, it's 25 times higher in Scotland than in England. So it does show that link between, you know, where the NHS is struggling, people are making that personal choice to, mm. to go into their own coffers. And in Wales, similar, 20% of Welsh patients are on waiting lists at the moment compared to only 5% in England, although Wales is do a better, doing a better job of bringing it down quicker than we are in England. Yeah. But it is a higher percentage. And I think also the, the like the... The amount of time, I saw some statistics that the amount of time people are waiting in Wales is shorter. Yeah. So, so, so higher people are on the percentage so of the England is prioritising basically the people, you know, in, England is prioritising to an extent low-hanging fruit mm. to get the waiting lists down, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean... Yeah. Uh, the Welsh government doesn't collect data nationally on those kind of private sector referrals about who's paying mm. in what way. So there was a recent FOI request that established that that data is not in one place. Yeah. But, uh, it, yeah, same trend. I think this is interesting compared to the Republic of Ireland, actually, where they have a completely different system. It's kind of a mixed economy. You have, you do pay into uh, to, to receive medical treatment, but your payment depends on your income and outgoings and so on. So, depending on your social, your economic status. Yep. So, it's you go, you pay to see a GP. It's much easier to see a GP. You can see a GP the day you want to see them, no questions. Um, and you can get a routine procedure pretty easily. Of course, you're co-paying part of that. But they don't have great acute care outcomes or like, you know, more significant things. So cancer and so on. Their survival rate is not as high as in England. So that kind of mixed economy, which some of this suggests if, we, if attitudes are changing so radically, we might be shifting towards. It doesn't always have the best outcomes yeah. for the big issues. Yeah. So you might feel better on a day-to-day -day basis. You might get to see your GP and, and not have this pent-up frustration that the case studies that Zoe was talking to have. But then if you get cancer, your chances of survival are lower. Mm. Yes, and there was a little bit of that in the data you looked at, Zoe, that you know the vast majority of people were using private healthcare for small procedures mm. that make a big difference to your quality of life quickly mm. for not a lot of money. Mm. But yeah. does that defund then a service that should be there for the big stuff? So to wrap this up, uh, Zoe, it's now quite common for Tories to respond to talk of existential threat to the health service with well labor, always say that before an election. Mm. 
And it is true. Mm. So is there a little boy who cried wolf mm. thing going on here? Has the, has the threat lost its sting through overuse? Or is there a way to galvanize people into supporting the notion of a universal healthcare system free at the point of use? So my worry with the NHS is that we constantly hear that the NHS is on the brink of collapse, don't mm. we? So every winter we hear if there's a big flu pandemic, mm. a big flu outbreak this year, the NHS could crumble. We hear that all the time. And there definitely have been individual trusts that have been in crisis. And obviously the pandemic, I mean, we had to lock down yeah. to to prevent the NHS from literally falling apart. Yeah. But um, people seem to have a short memory or perhaps, as you were saying, we've just heard it one too many times and people don't really... It doesn't it doesn't have the same ring to it now when we talk about how the Conservatives have run down the NHS over 13 years. It's like, OK, yeah, we hear that all the time, but mm. it, I don't... A lot of people don't know what that looks like in practice, right? Yeah. Um, the, the pandemic could have been a great opportunity to sort of galvanise that support around the NHS, but again, it just sort of... Feels up. wasted, yeah, wasted opportunity. It does. So it's a, it's a really difficult thing. I think what is... I think, you know, what Labour really need to do is to keep talking about the NHS, right? Yep. To keep that political appetite up for reform. I think one of the things that worries people is they're like, do we just have to keep throwing money at this? Is it destined to, is it, you know, too big now to to keep up with the needs of an ageing population, you know, the, the cost of public services? If Labour can genuinely present a vision of an NHS that is still free at the point of use, it still ticks all those boxes and it's, you know, better and it's sleeker and it's reformed as well as had some money spent on it, I think you could re-galvanise people mm. and get people excited about that thing that once brought the country very much together. But at the minute, it just feels like crisis after crisis after crisis. And I think people just don't know what to do about it. And I think actually part of that has been a, a maybe a slightly deliberate attempt by the government to make it sound like it just has to fail. You yeah. know, it's constantly yeah. failing yeah. Um, because they don't want to spend the money on it that it requires. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes. What audiovisual delights or flights of fancy have been distracting the panel this week? Let's start with you, Zoe. Okay, so I have been re-watching Louis Theroux's Wild Weekends on iPlayer, um, in part because I watched the brilliant um, and very sad and shocking dramatisation of um, the Jimmy Savile series of events mm. uh, by which had Steve Coogan in it who I thought played it exceptionally well I, and I would thoroughly recommend that if it hasn't already been recommended I think it's a three-part series on iPlayer and um, I went back because I realised I'd never watched uh, Louis Theroux's interview with Jimmy Savile and then got into the whole Weird Weekend series of interviews and he's just such a brilliant uh, documentary filmmaker Louis Theroux I mean he's really fantastic and some of them are really funny you know there's one where he interviews all the exotic pet owners in America people who have <laughs> yeah, chimpanzees and oh my gosh it's it's um outrageous but then he does you know the really serious ones and he you know one of them actually he did about um Israel and Palestine which was obviously 
um, very timely to watch back and, and threw up a lot of really interesting issues. But I'd thoroughly recommend, I mean, I think they all came out a number of years ago now, but a lot of them are still very relevant. Some of them are much more serious than others, but all in all, you and know. And are they on iPlayer? They're on still. iPlayer, Good. yeah. So anyone who's at a loose end, Louis Theroux. What about you, Helen? I'm deep into the second series of The Bear on uh, Disney+, Plus, which I'm just really enjoying. And, I, you know, it's very well publicised, so I'm sure listeners will know quite a lot about it. But it's about um, a young chef who was working in a Michelin-style restaurant who moved back to Chicago to save his late brother's uh, restaurant after a tragedy in the family. And it's it's about family. It's about um, It's about friendship. Uh, it's about connection to the place that you grew up. But also, it's all very, very funny in parts and has the most brilliant soundtrack. Really unexpected music choices that just really make it work as a piece, I think. So, yeah, big recommendation from me. Very good. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer, which you should be. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Zoe Grunewald and Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, who's fucking off after recording this outro. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Bye. (laughs) 